0: Welcome. So my name is Ruby Sandu. I set up Shavega Talks to provide a platform for Shavega.com and through interviews bring to the fore important perspectives from leading lights on veganism, plant based life, and sustainability. The underlying passion is, of course, to provide another perspective on animals, our planetary cohabitants, and including context of our only home, planet Earth. That is away from the anthropocentric, human-centric perspectives and dogma and importantly with the expertise of senior professionals who advocate on healthy diets for our pets and to transition to a healthy and plant-based diet. Today I'm absolutely delighted to introduce to you Professor Andrew Knight. Originally from Australia and at an early age an advocate and campaigner for animal rights specifically to ban sheep trade to the Middle East then. He practiced later as a vet in London and then went to head the largest vet school in the Caribbean. Professor Knight is the founding director of the University Centre for Animal Welfare, adjunct professor in Queensland. He's been honoured with a number of awards for his work. And you can find Professor Knight on the Internet, whether it's blogs, YouTube videos, publications. And of course, now he is teaching animal welfare and ethics at the University of Winchester, a beautiful town not far from London. I met Professor Knight, I think almost 10 years ago when, um, when uh, Andrew, you introduced me to your vegan veterinary friends at a recently opened vegan restaurant off Regent Street in London. It was at a time when I was torn between loving one sentient being, my dog, and feeding him another sentient being, such as a lamb, sheep, cow, pig, rabbit, etc., Andrew, you gave me the confidence to transition my dog Bono to a plant based diet and seven years on and a recent blood test, he is doing great. So Professor Knight, Andrew, you've had an extraordinary career, which includes practice, teaching, advocacy, campaigning and publications. Before we delve in, what was the main reason for you training as a vet? Welcome.
1: Well, thanks very much for that kind introduction and great to hear your dog uh, Bono is is doing so well. Um, And yeah, the main reason for me being a vet was really that um, I was a a young person in Perth, Western Australia, which turned out to be the world capital of the live sheep export trade. Um, And in the mid-1990s, I got drawn into the campaign to ban the live sheep trade. Uh, We were exporting about five million sheep a year on a sea voyage of around about two and a half weeks, mostly to Middle Eastern countries. Um, And during that that voyage, uh, usually more than 100,000 sheep would die at sea each year uh, because of poor conditions on the ships and starvation and things like that. So this was one of the uh, biggest animal welfare issues, uh, certainly in my part of the world. We would see the sheep trucks travelling to the docks with uh, crammed, packed full of sheep with legs sticking out the side of the trucks uh, to be loaded onto these uh, enormous floating converted car carriers and other aging vessels and transported uh, across to the Middle East. So I was drawn into the campaign to get this all banned. uh, And this was the first time I'd been involved in any campaign to really try to make a difference to large numbers of sentient creatures. Uh, And it felt incredibly um, rewarding to be able to be involved in something so significant. I hadn't done that before in my life. Uh, So I thought, how can I try to set myself up so that I can do this long-term for the rest of my career, essentially, uh, without having to scrabble around for the money to pay for postage stamps to support uh, the campaign, which is what I was having to do at the time uh, because I had no money. Um, So I thought, about the options and decided that uh, training to become a veterinarian would be uh, one of the most useful things I could do. I'd get sort of specialised, hopefully, knowledge uh, about a broad range of animal welfare issues, uh, the credibility to be taken seriously by uh, the media outlets that were reviewing me on a regular basis at the time. Um, and the ability to to earn my daily bread by uh, helping animals actually so I thought that would be a very rewarding thing to do so that's what motivated me to study really hard and to try to get into the veterinary school uh, in West Australia which I then did.
0: Well that's a, an extraordinary story so really from a very young age you sort of followed your heart and your passion and you um, uh, that's really inspiring. Andrew, what's your, uh, you know, I mean, young vets training, uh, there are certain practices that, uh, you know, are part of the curriculum. What are these practices and what do you, um, you know, uh, what what do you not recommend and what changes have there been in the training um, as a vet?
1: Sure. Um, unfortunately, harmful animal use is a part of uh, veterinary curricula in courses around the world. um When I entered the vet course, I had the vague idea that harmful animal use might be required and also the vague idea that humane alternatives were probably available. But I was ignorant of what the details of either of those might be. Uh, And I tried to rationalize to myself that if I was forced to harm animals in my training, uh, it'd be worth it because I'd be able to help so many more afterwards as a qualified vet. So um, this essentially was uh, my mechanism for trying not to think too much about the issue and this strategy of not thinking and sort of managing to avoid the issue worked really well for me up until the end of first year when uh, unfortunately there was a particular uh, lab class in cell biology when rats were being killed uh, right there and then for our use uh, in this experimental class. And um, I was sure that there must be humane alternatives available and that we didn't really need to kill rats to learn the biochemical information that was being taught. Um, On this occasion, the um, academics in charge were hostile to the idea of humane alternatives Uh, and denied my request for an alternative, so um, I I ended up boycotting the lab class, which cost me a grade in that uh, course. Um, However, I was the first person to refuse to participate in anything for several years, and it caused a lot of controversy with a lot of people uh, supporting what I was doing and a lot of people opposed to to what I was doing. And all of this combined with financial pressures resulted in the class being dropped completely uh, the following year, which saved about 40 rats each year. So it's well worth uh, losing a grade uh, in that course. But um, after that, I, I sort of became an expert on what the alternatives were so that I'd be better prepared for the animal use in the rest of the veterinary course. And there was um, animal killing in um Anatomy uh, courses to, uh, to we had to dissect in student groups uh, a whole range of animals and body parts. Uh, so, um, I, myself and some of my classmates ended up uh, setting up a pet body donation program similar to human body donation programs in medical schools to be able to source uh, those uh, cadavers ethically. Uh, And there's also experimentation on living animals, uh, highly invasive experiments where some pretty horrible things were done, unfortunately, uh, in physiology classes and biochemistry classes. And uh, I actually had to take uh, legal action against the university or or initiate that and also uh, go to the mainstream media. Um, Ended up exposing all of this harmful animal use on the national television channels and other media outlets. Um, this was all hugely successful. Uh, the university rapidly changed its position and became the first university in Australia uh, to allow students to use humane alternatives. Um, and this was then picked up and copied by other universities in Australia and even internationally. So that's been fantastic. Uh, when we went on to the surgical course in fourth year of the vet degree, We set up an alternative surgical program as well, uh, instead of using uh, healthy animals to practice surgical procedures and then kill them at the end of the procedure, which was what was uh, the normal situation, Uh, quite often using ex-greyhounds when they weren't racing fast enough to make a profit anymore. So we um, missed out on all of those labs, but we ended up getting alternative surgical experience, assisting with um, beneficial procedures on real patients, uh, the same way that medical students are taught uh, under close one-to-one supervision. And we ended up getting about five times as much surgical experience as our classmates, and it was hugely successful. So I really got um, drawn into a very big campaign uh, when I was in veterinary school, um, which I have to say took an awful lot of time away from my studies. And I I ended up barely passing uh, the course at the end of it. But it was worth it because we contributed to uh, a sea change, I think, in humane education in Australian veterinary schools. Uh, We had the first students graduating from all the Australian veterinary schools uh, without harming animals in their surgical training in 2005. That was um, myself and my, my friends in other Australian veterinary schools. And the same thing has been going on in other countries as well. So uh, Harmful Animal Use still is a part of the courses, but uh, fortunately only a small part now compared to the way it used to be.
0: That is extraordinary. And of course, now there's uh, all sorts of uh, bio-modelling, computer, uh, you know, uh, innovation, AI, um, where you know, testing on animals, um, you know, they, they're really looking at uh, uh, not having to test on animals at all. So um, the, the problem is all this information is so disaggregated Um, And, you know, it's how do you connect the uh, dots within these various sort of professional silos. So somebody testing um, on this sort of uh, bio, uh, you know, and modeling, etc, would not necessarily think of, oh, well, possibly this could be used uh, in in vet schools and not just sort of uh, med schools. And yeah.
1: Yeah, it's uh, really important to try to increase awareness of uh, teachers, educators, researchers, those using animals in scientific and educational settings. Uh, And there are a number of ways that that can be done. Um, We could, for example, make it uh, necessary for ethical approval of procedures, which has to be done at virtually all institutions where animals are used, um, that alternatives are properly considered we could make it necessary for uh, receiving grant money to conduct research, and also for publication of results, scientific journals uh, in order to succeed in their careers uh, and keep their jobs. Uh, Academic staff have to publish regularly in academic journals so many journals have now signed up to policies uh, supporting the use of alternatives but they're still not actually requiring their authors to comply with those adequately. So um, those are some ways that we could try to change the culture within uh, scientific and educational animal use.
0: That sounds absolutely excellent. Um, Another thought that sort of comes to mind before I uh, ask you uh, the next question is, what are the templates? Because a lot of the emerging economies use templates from the West. Um, Whether it's education, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, industry, et cetera, which is uh, sometimes not fit for purpose. Um, You know, an emerging country has its own sort of journey to go. And we do sort of use our Western templates in those emerging economies. And it really doesn't uh, it doesn't work. I'm curious about sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, animal um, uh, sort of welfare, nutrition, et cetera. How, how much um, uh, impact or how much work have you done in Africa?
1: Uh, I unfortunately haven't had the opportunity to even visit Africa yet, sadly, uh, uh, nor work there, to be honest. So I, I have to say that's not one of the regions I've been lucky enough to be involved in so
0: far. Okay, so that's a discussion we can certainly have afterwards. That's really interesting. Um, you mentioned um, uh, academia. Um, you did transition into academia. And uh, what were the reasons for that as opposed to uh, practice?
1: It was um, serendipitous and accidental, to be honest. I had been um, practicing as a small animal veterinarian, uh, mostly in London for nearly a decade after I finished veterinary school. and. I worked as a locum vet so I uh, replaced people who were on holidays or away uh, sick Uh, and this was good because it gave me a lot of uh, free time to conduct uh, more uh, studies and publish academic articles about humane teaching methods in education and also critiquing uh, scientific animal use and describing alternatives and I ended up getting a PhD in this area and publishing a book with Paul Grave about scientific and educational animal use. So um, out of the blue, I was contacted by the Dean of one of the world's largest veterinary schools who had been told uh, that I was someone who knew uh, quite a lot about humane teaching methods. And she asked, would I be interested in um, applying for a position that they had uh, in animal welfare and ethics uh, as an associate professor position Uh, And this uh, school was in the Caribbean. And I thought to myself that uh, I had no prior academic experience, so I wouldn't get the job, but I was certainly going to accept a free trip out to the Caribbean to attend the interview. Um, I hadn't been there before, so I... I uh, very keenly uh, got onto the plane and was put up in a beautiful uh, five-star resort uh, on the island of St Kitts uh, and attended two days of interviews and I thought nothing more would come of that because as I say, I had no academic background and uh, I, was, I was deeply shocked to be offered the position uh, a, a short time after that and that created a real quandary for me because I, it hadn't been in my plans to actually uh, have an academic career um, but now I was, I was being seriously considered for that. Um, So I felt a moral obligation at that point to start taking it seriously because they'd spent time and money uh, actually flying me out there and and spending with me. So I ended up taking uh, that position and I did that for a couple of years. And I managed to get um, animal welfare introduced into four points in the curriculum. And previously there hadn't been any. Uh, This was the second largest vet school in the world. And they graduated about 11% of all US veterinarians. So it was quite important that uh, they got some exposure to animal welfare. But then a better position came up in 2015. That was at the University of Winchester, one hour south of London, uh, where there was an opportunity to set up a a whole new uh, center for animal welfare. Uh, So I applied and and got that position. And uh, we now have a really successful distance learning master's program in animal welfare, along with an undergraduate degree, several uh, PhD and master's students, and we have a very active program of research and publication and also outreach. We want to um, engage with uh, wider society and important stakeholder groups rather than be on some kind of academic ivory tower. So we have things like public facing events with guest speakers and uh, help uh, submit reports to governments and things like that. So that's all gone very well. And I, I'm um, surprisingly have turned into uh, an academic. This was never actually the plan. I still continue to support uh, animal advocacy uh, as much as I can and as time allows.
0: Wow that's extraordinary. So again I love the use of the word serendipity. You really are on a journey um, of impact. Um, Andrew um, explain to the audience what animal welfare means um, uh, from, from your perspective.
1: Sure. Um, animal welfare is, is a concept that has evolved over time. It used to be considered to be uh, the well-being of an animal, um, simply based upon how healthy it was. Uh, modern understandings of animal welfare, though, um Include things like uh, the ability of the animal to engage in highly motivated natural behaviours. Uh, so, a lot of intensively farmed animals, for example, are in very restrictive uh, environments, are so quite barren, and they don't have the opportunity to do this. So, ability to engage in important natural behaviours and also the mental state of the animals now considered really important, so uh, affective states, the uh, emotional states experienced by animals. The other thing that's occurred is there's been a shift in focus away from just trying to avoid negative experiences uh, to understanding that positive experiences are also important for uh, animals and good welfare. So we want uh, the negative experiences to be minimized and the positive experiences to be maximized. So animal welfare is, is uh, the state of welfare or well-being of an animal uh, and you can assess that by looking at uh, a bunch of um, <clears throat> inputs, uh, things like uh, the nutrition, the environment, the amount of attention the animal gets and also look at what we call outputs in engineering terms, uh, things like uh, the effects on the animal itself, uh, its health status, its ability to engage in normal behaviours, uh, its mental state and opportunity to experience positive states in particular.
0: And is this defi- uh, difficult for you? Because I'm just thinking uh, within the context of uh, you know animal welfare, ultimately it is sort of breeding and consumption how do you sort of uh, I, I wouldn't use the word cognitive dissonance but how do you deal with that?
1: I mean I think um, a lot of people in the field uh, recognize that there are serious animal welfare problems with breeding consumption of animals um, certainly in terms of modern intensive farming systems for example or breeding of very large numbers of animals for scientific research Um, there seems to be a dissonance, I would say, a cognitive dissonance in that people um, often seem not to be willing to follow that to its logical conclusions. Uh, If something is clearly contrary to the welfare of animals, uh, surely that means that we shouldn't be engaging in that behaviour. It's as simple as that if we want to consider ourselves as ethical uh, beings. So uh, I think Unfortunately many people haven't managed to make that logical transition and I think there are uh, psychological reasons why that occurs but that is the obvious conclusion it's not a problem that I have I certainly do think that many uh, contemporary animal use practices should be severely curtailed or even banned and I'm quite happy to to say so. Yeah no
0: that's excellent and and are you teaching um, animal ethics at Winchester as well?
1: Um, yes, I mean, I, I lead our distance learning master's program in animal welfare, science, ethics and law. Uh, I'm actually involved in research projects uh, this year and next year. So my own uh, teaching that I do is minimal at the moment, but I still uh, lead that program and have a module on our undergraduate degree in animal welfare as well, which is all about uh, animal research and alternatives. So, so yes, I, I, do, uh, I do teach there.
0: Excellent and just uh, for somebody who's listening to the podcast who's interested in um, animal welfare and ethics what sort of background what criteria what's the what's the sort of work that individuals do once they've undertook uh, undertaken your program?
1: Most of our students want to go on and become professional animal advocates working for the um, national and international animal advocacy organizations uh, such as policy officers or in other roles so uh, we aim to be a broad church welcoming people from all sectors including things like animal farming and animal laboratories if they have an interest in animal welfare Um, but most of our students want to go on and work for those uh, professional animal advocacy organizations And I'm very proud of the master's program uh, actually I'm very privileged to have had the opportunity to set that up because our graduates get three things. They get uh, a detailed knowledge of the full range of animal welfare issues. They also get uh, an advanced qualification in the field, a master's degree, which uh, helps them, I think, to have impact with uh, all sorts of stakeholder groups. And thirdly, uh, they get um, some guidance about the development of good communication skills, not just traditional academic essays, but also ones that will help them to engage with wider society and have impact. So uh, we require them to do things like um, prepare short presentations, PowerPoint presentations, uh, record those as YouTube videos and upload them to YouTube, publish blog assignments on the internet. Um, publish academic posters, do these sorts of things, as well as the traditional academic essays. So they end up getting all three of those things. So it's a little bit like a a factory um, producing a a cohort of highly skilled uh, animal advocates uh, every year, actually. Um, It's been incredibly successful. We've got quite a number uh, coming out every year uh, these days uh, in, in the 30s, I would say.
0: That is absolutely excellent because obviously, people who care about animals can—you can sometimes be incredibly emotional—and um, I think um, undertaking a course such as this um, just provides the ability to um, uh, really uh, discourse um, uh, in a way that uh, you know allows uh, constructive engagement as opposed to. Um, Uh, you know, behaviour that, uh, you know, could push people aside, because you certainly don't want to create polarizations. You want to find uh, ways of really constructively engaging uh, with, uh, you know, other stakeholders. Uh, Really, really uh, great work there, um, Andrew. Now, debunking myths, um, you're a leading light in your field. What are you currently working on to counter uh, misleading narratives?
1: Uh, the issue that I'm working on at the moment is actually plant-based and alternate diets for cats and dogs. Uh, and the, I suppose the common uh, urban myth has been that uh, cats and dogs are carnivores and they require meat to survive and be healthy, whereas the scientific reality is that cats and dogs are animals with a specific set of nutritional needs, And providing we uh, meet those nutritional needs, uh, it doesn't matter at all what the particular ingredients are. Um, and it's, it's certainly scientifically possible to produce uh, pet foods that meet all of their nutritional needs using uh, plant mineral and synthetic sources without actually including animal products. So that's what I'm involved in at the moment. Uh, interestingly, there've only been two studies done so far, population studies looking at the health of cats and dogs on vegetarian and vegan diets, and they're quite small studies. So I've just finished doing uh, the biggest study uh, uh, in the field so far. We've had over 4,000 respondents uh, and I'm in the process of analysing those results. But the initial results seem to be that uh, certainly the vegan animals uh, seem to be uh, at least as healthy as the rest, which is really exciting because it challenges the uh, traditional um, widespread view that uh, that's not, not the case at all. So that's terribly exciting. And then next uh, year, I want to move into looking at the environmental sustainability of the different pet food choices. Um, We've recently had the very first studies published in this field showing that the pet food sector uh, has quite a big environmental footprint Um, within the US, for example, it contributes 25 to 30% of all of the impacts of animal agriculture in terms of land use, water use, fossil fuels, biocides, pesticides, and there's also a lot of uh, greenhouse gases um, produced. Uh, what we don't know so far is what the differences would be uh, with a partial or complete transition onto other dietary types, including plant-based. So that's what I aim to uh, investigate next year, and also what the impacts would be of rolling that out on a planetary basis. So. I've got the opportunity to be involved in some really exciting work uh, at the moment. And uh, that's what's keeping me busy, actually, uh, now and into next year as well.
0: Wow, that is absolutely extraordinary and and absolutely on point. Um, uh, You know, um, environmental sustainability, it's not science. uh, I uh, studied an MSc uh, on responsible business and sustainability, and yet we never, ever had space for animals and the impact Uh, the animal industry was having on the planet rather it was more reference to the petroleum um, and you know uh, the mining etc. It was only until certain documentaries came out that actually um, uh, information about that sort of uh, started uh, going out and I think it's really uh, good that you're actually focusing on that because um, we do need um, you know um, academic um, uh, studies uh, on that information. Um, I don't know why it hasn't been um, addressed scientifically uh, before. We mentioned a lot about petroleum, but no one's really looked at the impact of, uh, you know, animal agriculture in in earnest.
1: Yes, it's um, certainly been a bit of a blind spot. Uh, There is often a reluctance to look at uh, diet when people themselves seem to be committed to consuming animal products. Uh, And when people believe urban legends such as cats are carnivores, they have to eat meat. So there has been this blind spot. It hasn't been looked at until very recently. The first studies in this field are really exciting and quite uh, concerning uh, in terms of the size of the dietary ecological paw print of these animals. Um, and there's a couple of factors that are making this more important as we move forward in time. One is increasing pet ownership Mm -hmm. uh, worldwide, and particularly as developing nations, notably China, Mm -hmm. um, become more affluent and develop the disposable incomes necessary to support a large pet population. And the second trend is that pet foods themselves are changing. They used to be more reliant on the byproducts of the animal slaughtering industry for human consumption, but there is a lot less reliance now on byproducts and more, uh, a greater proportion of animals are being slaughtered primarily to go into pet food uh, with premium cuts of meat going into pet food. So both of those things are increasing the numbers of farmed animals that uh, are needed to support the pet food sector and also uh, the environmental impacts uh, that, that result from that. Um, so... We've, we've had a blind spot, we've not considered it, we should have done so, uh, and it's going to be increasingly important in the future.
0: Uh, absolutely, and actually it was the underlying passion for uh, setting up Shevega, and, 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 and really important for people to really understand, we need to walk our talk as well, that if we're on plant-based diets, we need to look at the footprint of uh, our animals. But before we get heavy, I would really like uh, you to tell the story of tyke, Uh, That was quite an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary story. So it would be great for the uh, uh, listeners to hear that.
1: Sure. So uh, little tyke was the most famous uh, vegetarian uh, lion, actually a lioness. Um, And you certainly wouldn't think that a lioness could successfully be a vegetarian. But Uh, Little tyke was raised on an animal sanctuary by George and Margaret Westbow in the 1950s, I think, with uh, a lamb, a deer, and a swan, all of whom became her firm friends, and she wasn't raised roaming around the African savannah, pursuing giraffes, impalas, gazelles, and so on, so she didn't associate uh, other animals uh, with, with food. She was uh, fed um, a double handful of cooked grains daily, chosen for their prosium, protein, calcium, fats, and roughage. Uh, half a gallon of milk, um, a couple of eggs. She wasn't a vegan; she was a vegetarian. Uh, and to safeguard the health of her teeth, um, she would uh, enjoy chewing on a rubber gum boot with her favourite uh, perfume sprinkled on it. And apparently, a gum boot would last her for about a month. So she grew up um, and by the age of four, she was 10 feet, four inches long from uh, snout to tail tip. Um, she could run at about 64 uh, kilometers or 40 miles per hour, per hour. She was about 150 kilograms, about 350 pounds of weight and One of uh, America's most experienced zoo curators said that she was the healthiest African lioness that uh, he had ever seen. So at that point, uh, the West stopped worrying about uh, the claims of the veterinarians at the time that she would become uh, seriously ill and and die if she didn't uh, eat any meat.
0: It's an extraordinary uh extraordinary story and, and and it sort of reminds me how we think of uh animals as sort of machines and it comes from that cartesian approach you know Descartes, i think therefore i am um and the approach we have to animals is they're not you know we don't we don't consider that they evolve as well and they operate within the context that they're in um, and we only have to look at dogs they're domesticated and look at the way their whole sort of body systems Um, adapted and evolved to sort of thrive where we are and of course in India a lot of the pets are vegetarian I mean this is of course modernity's hit so you know a lot of them are uh, now changing the diets of the pets so it's sort of tinned uh, sort of meat food but a lot of them uh, seem to um, you know I'm not sure whether I can use the word thrive but seem to be okay with the sort of vegetarian food uh, that they were fed at the time.
1: Yeah, uh, dogs have been domesticated for somewhere in the range of twenty to 40,000 years, uh, and that's long enough for their physiology to have changed quite a bit. So uh, they have evolved to be able to make more use of carbohydrates, uh, so that is discarded uh, scraps from the campfires of our ancestors uh, than the wolves from whom they were descended. Cats have been domesticated for a shorter period of time, uh, more like eight to 10,000 years, and were traditionally used to um, guard the grain stores uh, of human settlements uh, to protect them from rodents. Uh, so they haven't had as long to uh, change their physiology as dogs have had. Um, cats are more obligate carnivores in the sense that um, in their natural environments, uh, they needed to consume prey animals to get the full range of nutrients uh, needed to survive and thrive. But none of um, this is actually relevant to the diet of a modern cat, to dog, uh, cat or dog today in, in the domestic home that's eating um, usually a, a quite a variety of farmed animals that they would never naturally eat. Uh, fed at predictable times daily with all sorts of artificial additives uh, added in. Uh, what all of these animals need, of course, is the the full range of nutrients uh, that their physiology requires. Uh, they certainly don't need meat or any other particular ingredient so long as all of those nutrients are there. And the, the modern uh, plant-based and other alternate diets being developed are designed to supply all those nutrients uh, in a form that is um, palatable, so sufficiently tasty, smelly, of the right colour and texture that the animals will like to eat it, and also sufficiently digestible and available to the tissues. And we're seeing more and more of those diets being developed uh, all the time.
0: Absolutely. And certainly that, that's our work with but, um Andrew, current, uh, uh, I, I use the word commercial, so I think for the audience, current canned and dry uh, kibble diets, how good are they for uh, pets?
1: Well, um, they are certainly designed to supply all the nutrients that are needed and people should uh, check the labeling claims. There are usually statements to the effect that it's a nutritionally complete diet. It's been formulated to um, supply the nutrient requirements needed for adults or puppies or kittens, respectively. Um, But the concerns, I think, are that uh, if they're not premium brands, there can be a high proportion of byproducts. So these are uh, off casts from the uh, slaughterhouse that are often considered uh, poor quality um, such as the less edible tissues of animals, um, ligaments, sinews, uh, hooves, faces, ears, things like that. Uh, and also all sorts of, um, additives of questionable safety sometimes when we're looking at the preservatives that are added in uh, and questionable quality as well. There might be leftover uh, grease from fast food restaurants. Um, there might be supermarket rejects when meat approaches its use by date um, and various other um, antibiotic residues, hormonal residues. If we're talking about products are from the US, where hormones are routinely uh, fed to antibiotic, sorry, to livestock animals, so these sorts of concerns, um, along with various pathogens as well, um, the. Plant-based diets, of course, uh, also aim to supply all of the nutrients that are needed, but without all of these uh, low quality and potentially hazardous uh, ingredients. So I think they're going to be increasingly popular in the future.
0: Wow, that's extraordinary. I mean, as a lawyer, I'm just thinking, I don't know whether anyone's explored and whether anyone in the audience uh, would uh, to look at the whole sort of uh, false advertising, marketing, misdescription uh, it's interesting uh, to, to, to look at whether that's an area of law that needs to be looked at for the uh, animal um, and, and, and or specifically for the uh, pet industry. Um, we
1: we certainly need greater transparency. I think if people knew what was going into uh, commercial pet food, they would certainly think twice about uh, maintaining their animals on them. The animals would think twice about it as well. Uh, they're pretty smart, as those of you who have cats and dogs uh, would know. So we actually have to trick them, to be honest. Um and we do that via the addition of various additives, which are designed to increase the tastiness of these miscellaneous mixtures of discarded body parts. Um, the most, uh, one of the most powerful additives used is something called digest, which is partially dissolved uh, body parts, particularly intestines and other uh, abdominal and uh, chest organs of chickens with uh, certain substrates added in to give the different batches different flavours. These uh, create a very powerful taste. They're uh, very often added into canned uh, food and also um, various leftover uh, oils and fats are sprayed onto dried kibble, uh, providing a distinctive aroma and a taste. So they're very strong uh, taste enhancers which are added to these products to basically trick our uh, clever dogs and cats into eating what they probably otherwise wouldn't choose to eat.
0: Oh goodness, it's it's quite uh, disheartening. And the extraordinary thing is, of course, it's going to impact, uh, you know, the number of uh, vet visits, health, and of course, longevity. Um, I don't know whether there's been a study in terms of, you know, the length of block years, um, you know, whether that's, you know, are they living longer or is it shorter lives?
1: And that's, that's a brilliant question. And I'm literally, as, as I'm talking to you now, I've taken a break from analysing the uh, results from my very large scale study of more than 4,000 uh, pet owners, uh, looking at things like the longevity and the health outcomes on different diets and we don't have the uh, results statistically analysed yet, and the publications will come in the coming year. But um, the initial indications are that um, there certainly are no disadvantages, and there may even be advantages in these areas uh, for for the vegans, actually.
0: And I think uh, Greta Thunberg and uh, you know her following um, would really be happy about the impact it would have. Uh, positively on the planet if we were um, not only to look at a plant-based diet for humans but also for our pets. Just- yes
1: in, yes, indeed. I mean it's, it's clear that we cannot possibly uh, meet the objectives of the Paris Accord on Climate Change and our other climate change objectives without changing our uh, lifestyles, our consumption patterns and one of our significant consumption uh, patterns is uh, actually pet food. So if we can find pet foods which have a lower Ecological poor print. Um, this could make a significant difference to to our ability to meet uh, climate change objectives.
0: Wow, well, uh, really um, great work, uh, Andrew. You've been, uh, you know, one of my sort of uh, key uh, influencers, and. Um, yeah just really grateful for all the work that you're doing and you're pioneering and if people want to um uh, or certainly to find out about the course that you're running at uh, winchester university but also to follow you um do you have a, a twitter or instagram account how do people follow you
1: i mean thanks very much i'm always grateful when anyone takes the time to uh, look at my youtube videos on animal welfare or climate change or uh, read any of my works but um, I mean, I've I've got a website that's got links to all of that actually, um, which is uh, andrewknight.info, uh, and it's easy to find information about our Winchester Adam Welfare degrees. Um, you can Google those online, and people should immediately find those as well.
0: Excellent. Well, I'll put those in the uh, sort of uh, information box um, at the uh, end of the interview. Just absolutely delighted. Um, uh, It's just been extraordinary, um, you know, hearing about what you've been doing over the uh, last 10 years since we met. And um, I'll certainly be uh, keeping a very close uh, eye and ear to the ground on your future work. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Andrew Knight.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Uh, And uh, best wishes also to your wonderful dog, (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. He's sleeping quite contentedly in the corner. <laughs> Great. Thank you, yeah. Andy.